0: So, good morning, everyone. My name is Gary Greenstein. I'm an attorney at Wilson, Cincini, Goodrich, and Rosati in their Washington, D.C. office. And thank you for coming this morning. The title of the panel is Hot Topics in Music Tech Law. Uh, before, though, I start and introduce the panels, how many people listened to NPR this morning? Anyone? Uh, Do you hear the interview of the parents who lost their son in Afghanistan? Anyone? No? Anyone here a veteran who served? Thank you on this Veterans Day. Thank you. We have one person who served. So on the panel with me, uh, immediately to my left, we have Eric Ferraro of Fathom Law. Uh, Next to Eric, we have someone who I think pitched for the Giants in the World Series and (laughs) came out of the bullpen, kind of has that postseason beard, Uh, Whitney Broussard from the law offices of Whitney Broussard here in San Francisco. And finally, Jacqueline Sebeck from King, Holmes, Paterno, and Berliner. Uh, No need to spend time giving people's biographies. You can look at them online or check them out on LinkedIn. I want to make sure we have an opportunity to leave time for questions. If you have a pressing question during the talk, just raise your hand, and I'll decide whether or not uh, it's appropriate to interrupt. And for anyone uh, who wants to take a shot at BMI, please know that they are ably represented in the audience, and I will give them equal opportunity to respond to any attack on them. They are good friends and worthy adversaries. Uh, First off, a week ago today, we had a very significant election, and there are big changes coming in terms of the membership of Congress, uh, change in the Senate. And for those who have followed copyright law, there have been lots of pieces of legislation that have been introduced in this Congress. As hopefully most of you know from I'm a Bill sitting here on Capitol Hill, the cartoons when you were a kid, bills die at the end of Congress, and they have to be reintroduced for the next Congress. So all of those hopes – that were pinned on, whether it was the Songwriters' Equity Act or respecting senior performers as essential cultural treasures, the Respect Act, those bills are all dead as of January, and if there's going to be reform, they have to be reintroduced. Uh, Reintroduction, not necessarily very difficult, but to start off, what do people think will happen in this next Congress in terms of changes to the Copyright Act, whether an individual bill or omnibus reform of the Copyright Act, which is one of the things that's been uh, sought by numerous parties and certainly uh, called for by the current Register of Copyright. So does anyone think that this next Congress will be less dysfunctional <laughs> and will actually pass anything and will the president sign it, or will it be two more years and any, cop- any significant copyright reform you know, will take two, four, or six years to work its way through? The latter.
1: I, I mean I can't see it. I mean nothing's happened for 4 years. So I mean here we are there's you know I can't imagine Republicans and Obama agreeing on something that also is agreed on by you know all the different stakeholders in the business uh you know that that it would be you know commenting and hiring their lobbyists and things like that. I just can't see anything passing. I don't see I don't think any action's going to happen I think even 4 to 6 years is is uh um, you know, optimistic, very optimistic.
0: The copyright reform is typically bipartisan. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, you know, both Democrats and Republicans get, you know, starry-eyed around celebrities. And you bring a popular recording artist or a well-known songwriter into the Capitol and things happen. So – Eric, different view?
2: A a little bit. I mean, I I think that there's a lot of momentum building behind these types of legislative initiatives. You know, clearly everything is going to have to be, you know, taken from a a fresh perspective in terms of the new Congress. And I I do think there's going to be more – energy towards some sort of omnibus reform. I don't necessarily think that we're going to have a lot that passes this Congress not because of a partisan divide but simply because it's midterms and we've got a new president coming in and I think that still copyright reform is probably relatively low on the congress's, you know, sort of all in agenda. But I do think there's momentum. I think a lot of these issues are generally bipartisan. There are some that tip one way or some that tip another. But uh, I think we are going to see omnibus reform in some near term. I don't think it's going to happen in these next two years, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was significant momentum made during this term towards an omnibus bill, and that may be something that matures into actual legislation in the next presidential uh, election.
0: Jacqueline?
3: I, I agree with both those statements. I think um, we'll see what happens. I mean, tech, technology companies have a lot more money to lobby than the music business does, so that always is a concern. I'm not sure where we'll go with that. Part of me hopes that nothing changes rapidly because I don't, I don't love the laws that sort of look like contract negotiations. And so to the extent that we can stay away from legislation that should otherwise be arms length transactions between companies, uh, that would be preferable to me.
0: I mean, you don't like legislation that says if you're under 2,200 or something square feet and only four speakers that you're exempt from a public performance right? Has anyone here ever negotiated legislation, been locked in a room on Capitol Hill and had the pleasure of doing that? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? It's, a, it's actually an interesting experience to go through. Well, I guess uh,
3: I, just, I think the law should just be to allocate property rights not to transact negotiations between different entities. So to the extent that the laws change property rights, that's that's fine, but to the extent that they end up inserting themselves into negotiation, that changes the conversation.
0: Is one of the root problems of the entire recorded music industry the fact that terrestrial radio stations do not pay royalties for playing sound recordings over the air, and would doing away with the exemption for the public performance right for radio stations change many different things, including the pressure that the recorded music industry feels is necessary to impose upon non-interactive services like Pandora to pay high royalties? Uh, And do you think that this exemption that the broadcasters have enjoyed uh, for decades is something, if you were to look at the different pieces of legislation, Might this be the one piece of legislation that would get passed?
1: I think it's a worthy goal. You know, I mean, I don't know. I think that the the problem is is that, you know, the broadcasters are pretty powerful. And I think that they've, you know, obviously successfully blocked this for, you know, since the dawn of uh, radio. Um, But I do think that, you know, personally, I think it makes a lot more sense to have – you know, non-interactive services, whether they be through terrestrial radio or through the internet or through any other thing, through satellite radio, to basically be on parity. And they should all be paying, you know, similar royalties for their situation. I mean, I guess, you know, you would probably want to have some kind of a, uh, you know, a mechanism like a CARP or a royalty board or whatever to figure out, you know, why maybe you have a slightly different rate between the two guys because one's more expensive inherently, like you're running satellites, right? You know? Um, but I think that That, you know, in general, yeah, it should be, you know, it's a great thing to have. We should have a performance right. But, of course, the other thing to think about there is how you're going to administer it. Because, um, you know, one thing that doesn't seem to work out real well is to hand hand record companies new rights without restrictions on those rights. I mean, it works out okay for the record companies, but, you know, that's a huge antitrust problem. Well, you could Um, just
0: put it all under 114 and just do away with the exemption for – what are called non-subscription broadcast transmissions. That, that's just one little strike. I could do that right now. Well, but you'd have to, so, I mean, you, you, you know, you'd have to probably broaden the mandate of uh, sound exchange. It, it, you know. it, would, it would be covered. I mean, if, if the over-the-air exemption disappeared and it was a digital audio transmission that was not otherwise exempt and it was non-interactive, subject to compliance with things like the sound recording performance complement and, and pre-announcement of playlists, there's no reason why it shouldn't fit underneath the statutory license, and then SoundExchange would collect a couple more billion dollars in royalties, potentially. No, I think that's the fine way to do it.
2: I, I mean, I think that this is something that's going to happen. I think that you know, traditional terrestrial radio has resisted this for decades and decades. I mean, all the way back in the 40s, you had artists that were arguing for a, a performance. Um, Right for terrestrial radio, and and I think that the old arguments are breaking down. The arguments that radio is really the primary driver for record sales, and so artists benefit, you know, through the through the reproductions, and not through you know not through the performance, and also that terrestrial radio doesn't have the money to to pay this. You know, when you have conglomerates like Clear Channel owning. You know, such a large um, proportion of the terrestrial radio stations, that argument breaks down. I just think there's so much uh, momentum behind this. I, I do think it's it's likely to to happen, as, you know, in in the near term.
0: Does anyone is anyone brave enough to raise their hand to say that broadcasters still should get an exemption? No one. Okay, two brave people. Um, full disclosure: I've represented the the Radio Music Licensing Committee and comments before the Copyright Royalty Board and Clear Channel and some broadcasters but also Pandora and others and Sound Exchange so I won't state my views (laughs) and actually general disclaimer, nothing that any of us say can be attributed to any of our clients Mm -hmm. anything that we say uh, if you claim that we said it we will deny it (laughs) we will destroy the audio evidence and honestly, though, nothing said, certainly by me, can, should be attributed to any of my clients. So you can't say, Gary Greenstein, attorney for blank, said blank. You can say, Gary Greenstein said blank, but don't put my... <laughs> it, this is a public performance, <laughs> but I have signed a release to San Fran Music Tech. Exactly. That, I would like that. <laughs> uh,
1: hey, I didn't sign a release. Yeah.
0: No. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're opting out. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, talking about this performance, right, one of the things Whitney mentioned is this concept of platform parity. And before digging into platform parody, does anyone think it's appropriate that the ratio of what is paid for the sound recording is anywhere from five to maybe ten times what is being paid for the musical work? One of the major issues, and we'll dig down into this with performance uh, rights, withdrawals from PROs, performing rights organizations by music publishers, statements by CEOs of the publishers that they're not getting paid enough and they want parity. Does it make any sense in anyone's mind that Pandora may be paying 50% of revenue or if it were paying under the CRB rates, 90 to 100% of revenue, and ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC are getting collectively maybe 4, 4.5%. Maybe on a good day, 5% total for for performance rights. Defensible?
1: Uh, I think maybe that's the wrong ratio, but I, but I, you know, I do think that it makes sense to, uh, in some circumstances, to have a higher royalty for the sound recordings. And why is that? Because traditionally, and maybe, you know, that's, it's, it started to unravel. Uh, you know, I mean, the whole business is kind of unraveling. So, But traditionally, it was there was a very good argument that, I mean, the record company was the one leading the charge. They signed the artists. They paid for production. They, you know, did, you know, exp- extensive marketing campaigns. You know, they're spending a lot of money. Whereas the publisher, you know, yeah, they have an advance. They have an infrastructure to collect royalties and pay them out and things like that. But they're not so marketing intensive, you know. So a, rec- a record company could easily be a few million dollars into a record where the publisher might be four or $500,000 into the record. You so know? greater plus, risk, greater reward. Right. And, yeah.
0: and plus it's tied up
2: with the issue we just talked about, which is the terrestrial radio exemption. E- exemption. I mean – you know, historically, the one of the major rationales is that, you know, radio is going to be a promotional platform to drive record sales, and, and the publishers get their get their composition royalty from terrestrial radio, but you know, the artist only gets paid through record sales traditionally, and so that discrepancy is sort of tied up with that exemption.
0: Jacqueline, you represent creators, so recording artists, songwriters, uh, people who accuse clients of. Th- my two other colleagues here of massive copyright infringement and all bad sorts of things. When you're representing a songwriter versus a recording artist or maybe even a record label, if you take on any artist-owned labels, do you agree that there should be a ratio between the performance right for a sound recording and a musical work, and is it just the delta that exists right now, or do you believe in parity between the two?
3: Well, I pref- I, we prefer to be paid both times, you know, as much as possible for both plays. I do think that there's, I mean it's nice that Pandora's paying out on the master side and the publishing side and unlike radio terrestrial radio I, how many artists are here versus who? how many are lawyers in the room? Not sure. Okay um, so yeah, I mean I believe that there should be parity, we should be paid for both.
0: So, parity at what Pandora is currently paying, or parity at what the PROs are paying, or parity at something else? Because if you take Marty Bandier, the CEO of Sony ATV, at his word, and he wants parity with the labels, and the labels are getting, let's just say that Pandora's current rate reduction under what's called the Pure Play Settlement Act, or the Webcaster Settlement Act, pure play rates were to go away, and Pandora were paying 90% <laughs> of its revenue. Uh, and the publishers get parity, so you're paying out 180% of revenue. Anyone believe that even in the world of Silicon Valley, that companies can survive paying out 180? Yeah, you're gonna make it up on volume, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
3: I I think the money is there; (laughs) they can pay it. I mean, again, I I would almost prefer to do to take away the the restriction of what the payment is and and negotiate it.
0: Negotiate.
3: Uh, Negotiate the payment. I mean, why not just negotiate between the artist and the tech? Technology on a case-by-case basis.
0: So you work. have.
3: It is a ton that, of work, but uh, it's a ton of work to police it as well. Which is. But now how does what's that happening. work?
0: How, so what happens to the rights owners, the music publisher or the record label?
3: What happens to them in the negotiation? Yeah. Well, what what's happening right now is that they're being out lobbied.
0: Out lobbied by by
3: the tech companies who have more money to spend.
0: Hollywood's pretty powerful. Rights owners are pretty powerful. I know, who's it's, paying too low royalties, though? It's <laughs> I mean. yeah,
3: but it's not. Do you think it's working out?
0: Uh, it depends on who my client is at the time I'm asked the question. <laughs> yeah,
3: okay. Right. So, Remember,
0: I'm only a hired gun. I don't have positions. Yeah. I don't know. Well, so
3: for the content owners, I think we would we would for the, those of us who represent creators, I think we would say it could it could still be it could be better. It could be better situation. We could be paid more. Um, and, th- and we need to be paid more because we're losing revenue in other areas. So.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I, I think that – I mean, first I think it's, it's important to distinguish between interactive and non-interactive because, you know, on the non-interactive side, everybody's just making more money now, you know, because, because sound recordings weren't getting paid before and, you know, and there's more, uh, there's, you know, there's more uh, songs that are getting played in non-interactive than there were in terrestrial. And I don't think that it's it's incumbent on non-interactive webcasters to make up for the lost sales of records because that's a lot of money. That I mean, you know, the fact that there's one platinum record this year, only one this year, and it didn't happen till just now, is just retarded. I mean, I mean, no offense to retarded people, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's it's terrible. You know, it's it's a it's a really terrible situation. And um, you what know, what is th- that the
0: result of though?
1: Well, I think it's a lot of things. I think, you took, you know, first of all, you're talking about a 30-year-old technology, storage technology for CDs. I mean, you know, computers don't even have CDs in them anymore. You know, I mean, how many more years do you think they're going to put CDs in cars? You know, not very many. Uh, I got one, but I mean.
0: So do, is your point that, and just for people who don't know, that non-interactive versus interactive is a question under federal copyright law where if you're a non-interactive service where it's more the service plays <coughs> – For you what it thinks you may want to hear, so it may be linear or algorithmic programming, Uh, that's eligible for what's called a statutory license. An interactive service is where you get to select a song and you choose what you want to hear and when. Uh, That's not subject to a statutory license, a license granted by Congress, so you have to negotiate directly for those rights. So there are different – if you're non-interactive like Pandora, you don't have to negotiate with anyone you can pay the royalties if you're an interactive service. You have to negotiate with every rights owner, at least on the sound recording side, whose music you want to play. Uh, so, just to finish my thought, though, so I mean, on you know, so that's sort of the first side of this is
1: I don't think non- non-interactive webcasting needs to make up the difference for the business because it didn't cause that problem, and you know, it's just that's just it's, you're looking at the wrong guy. Um, I think that interactive is a lot diceier of a situation, and granted, that's all. Um, that that's all, you know, negotiated, basically, that those services, Rhapsody and Mog and Spotify and all those guys, did those licenses, you know, themselves, so no one can really blame, you know, the record companies and publishers don't have anyone to blame but themselves for allowing those licenses. But, you know, that, I think, is having a huge impact on sales. I mean, you know, not that ne- those subscription services are all that big, but, you know, anecdotally, I have a lot of friends who, like, have Spotify, and they don't buy any records anymore. And you go, like, oh, did you, you know, you, uh, you should go get this, you know, Harry Nilsson box set is a great record you know, he's like no I have everything on Spotify I'm not
0: going to buy so it how many people in this room use a non-interactive service like Pandora, Live 365 Wawa uh, others how many people use a non-interactive service and also subscribe to an interactive service like Rhapsody, Spotify how many people only have a subscription service Interesting. Uh, which one is that? Oh, the free version, the freemium. Okay, YouTube. Um, now, th- th- there is an argument with me that the record industry has made through sound exchange and the webcasting for proceeding currently taking place that non-interactive services are now good enough that they, even in a lean-back experience, they provide enough of what people want. So that there is convergence between non-interactive and interactive services. The functionalities are not that great. So if you want to hear Bob Marley and you have to go to Spotify or you think, you know what, I just want to hear reggae. So if I put in Bob Marley on Pandora, I'm going to hear Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff, Bob Marley and the Wailers. You know, I'll get a mixture of music that will be sufficient. But that's a
1: silly argument. That that argument is basically rooted in the fact that uh, traditional radio sucks, so it didn't make a difference. You know, I, I mean, they're that. saying that that new, that the new version of radio is better. You know, it's it's so much better that it's that you know it's a, it's eliminated a lot of problems that people had with like tr- you know traditional radio, and so therefore it's a danger. But the problem is, is that you know, look, if you just want to listen to reggae and you don't want to listen to any particular reggae thing, that's not a record sale. That wasn't a record sale; it never was. Uh, if you want to, uh, uh, you know, if you want to listen to the new Taylor Swift record, you aren't going to do it on Spotify. You know, that's yeah. I mean, that's that's. I understand why she did that because, you know, it, it, to me, I, it would make me nervous as an artist to have my record available, you know, uh, if I'm trying to sell a record and, and you know, and have people be able to listen to the whole thing in relatively high quality for free as much as they want, you know, and I don't get paid.
0: Eric?
2: I mean, so to the to the notion that You know the best breed of non-interactive services are are sufficient, and we don't need interactive services. I think that's nonsense. You know, sometimes Pandora or Django or you know good non-interactive service can you know supply the listening experience that you want, but it's it's never going to be a substitute for being able to play exactly what you want when you want. Um, The you know to the to the Taylor Swift. Opt out I mean this this goes back a long time. you know artists have been complaining about the penny rates that receive they receive from streaming services forever, and you know I, I think one i think it 's a misguided approach to say i 'm not going to put my music on an interactive service because I want people to download my album on iTunes or buy it in the record store or whatever that is um, you know increasingly. This whole discussion about copyright reform is based on, even though the the technology has shifted and the the legislative initiatives have shifted, it's based on this idea that the consumption of music and, and the idea that music itself ought to be the commodity that's sold. I think that has to break down, right? So, you know, increasingly there are ways for artists and publishers to monetize music other than through the sale of the music, whether it's by way of a streaming service or whether it's by way of a but that, a they're arguing down.
0: that in order for them to continue to be able to make money to invest in new music, they've got to get paid more. So the PRO is saying that four and a half percent from Pandora is insufficient.
2: Well, I mean, so back to the question about parity. Uh, you know, you can all we can all agree. I, I think that there needs to be better parity, but you can't base you know if you look at the experience that pandora has paying out such a huge amount of their uh top line revenue through sound exchange and a relatively small amount to the the publishers through the the PROs that's not sustainable it's punitive i think to the the interact uh, to the non-interactive services it's driven in part by terrestrial radios non-contribution to the to the performance of the master i think there has to be an adjustment but you can't just change one you can't just say through a consent decree we're going to look at the you know the, the rates that that services have to pay through you know to, to ask and BMI without also addressing the way that the, uh, the the pricing works you know through sound exchange for the. For so better. it sounds
0: like tinkering tinkering is not a solution is one of the things that I'm hearing because you've got a fabric for for those of you who don't Live in this world every day, there are, you pull one thread and it does kind of unravel or raise issues so let's let's I think the way sort to think about
1: that would be to you know, you know figure out what the aggregate royalty should be between you know uh, the, the masters and the publishing, and then divvy it up you know here 's your pie
0: so yeah. that, let, let's just you know it 's an, not and in the, the outline, <laughs> so you guys are not prepared for this, but this is one of my pet peeves or pet projects, so if I were chairman of the Judiciary committee. Uh, Non-interactive services are currently subject to a consent decree. Interactive services are subject to free market negotiations. Many interactive service agreements have MFN provisions that ensure that the major labels will be getting paid the same amount of money. The MFNs have changed over time so that cherry-picking of provisions is sought by the copyright owner. So if you give a higher advance to universal and a lower royalty rate, But a higher royalty rate to Sony, Universal can say, you know what, we want our high advance and the higher royalty rate you've given to Sony. So these are people who have enormous power. If MFNs are going to operate in this market and not be declared per se illegal, why not, and this is now the question for the panel, why not create a statutory license for online uses of music and say, all uses of music are covered by a music statutory license, And what we're going to do is we're going to say copyright royalty board or federal court. You set a rate for what Pandora or Spotify, interactive or non-interactive, what you use for music. And then let's let the copyright owners fight over how to allocate that money. Universal owns – or Vivendi owns Universal Music Group, which owns Universal Music Publishing. Warner Music owns Warner Chapel Music Publishing. Sony Music is part of the joint venture of Sony ATV Music Publishing. Why are we allowing, or why is the copyright law set up so that the technology company has to fight with two divisions or two affiliates of the same corporate entity? Why not just say music is worth 45% of all revenue on a non-interactive basis and 70% of revenue for all interactive uses, and you publishers and labels, you fight it out. Don't let the services get involved. Federalize all of this. Anyone like that idea? I I, I don't. No? (laughs) You're you're the one I didn't want to, so. (laughs) um,
3: But the current MFN is also still prorated by content share, right? Um, So Universal might not. The the MFN with Universal and Sony is going to be different based on content. Well, that that
0: would come into play on the pro rata component of the same Right percentage of revenue, but on a per performance rate, it wouldn't matter. It would be the same rate.
3: Yeah. Well, I guess my, I mean, the major problem I have with that suggestion is again, it takes it takes out this uh, fair market negotiation that that happens, which I think benefited the labels. Um, I think what's missing in that discussion, though, of the per the penny rate, stre- you know, the stream rate for the Taylor Swifts or the Jimmy Buffets of the world is that that transaction did happen between the record label and the streaming services where this MFN advance was paid, um, or equity was given in the company, and none of, that, none of that trickled down to the artist. So we're still arguing over the per stream rate when a huge financial transaction took place that the artist didn't participate in.
0: So it, maybe this is a shocking question, but are labels continuing to screw artists and not pay them fairly <laughs> for all compensation that they've <laughs> obtained? Do we have anyone who works for a major label in the room, if you're brave enough to raise your hand? I don't think they allow them to come anymore. <laughs> it it would appear that that
3: might be um, continuing to happen in different ways. And that, and, that, and, that, and that, unfortunately, the discussion, the public discussion, isn't focused on the correct issue in that in that area, as far as I can tell right now.
0: So the, where it should be discussed is the equity that Universal had in Beats and allegedly made $450 million when Apple bought Beats and...
3: As an artist representative, that would be the number I'd focus on, not the .006 cents per stream. I
2: think (laughs) if you are going to look at sort of a a one-size-fits-all online uses of music, the only way it works is if it's on a percentage of revenue basis. You can't fight over the per stream rate because not all services are – equally valued from the consumer perspective. This goes to your earlier question about whether non-interactive service is good enough to replace interactive services. People will pay more for interactive services, so there's more revenue that can be generated. If they're paying the same penny rate per stream as a non-interactive service, I think that's inequitable. But if you do it on a percentage of revenue basis, it becomes a scalable solution. I'm I'm going
0: to put on my sound exchange hat for days of old. Bring me back in time. The argument is they don't monetize enough. They're trying to build market share. They're giving away our music, and they're not generating enough revenue. Why should we bear the risk that on a percentage of revenue basis, you're maximizing revenue as opposed to just trying to grab audience share and build yourself up for either an IPO or an exit later on? You know, Why is that fair?
2: At the end of the day, you know, businesses have to monetize, so – You know, this idea that we're building towards an IPO and we don't really care what our top-line revenue is. I don't know if it's sustainable in the long run enough to impact legislation. But perhaps you establish a a floor penny rate to make sure that the percentage of revenue doesn't become entirely inequitable.
1: Or a minimum. I mean, you know, the PRO PRO deals typically, you know, are – are, you know, percentage of revenue subject to a, a yearly minimum or a monthly minimum or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, but that's you know? the
0: minimus. That's hundreds of dollars, not millions. Yeah, but,
1: you know, I'm saying structurally it works like that. So, right. I mean,
0: you can pick your own numbers, you know.
1: Um, but, I mean, I think that, for instance, you know, having the, the, the unitary license or something like that is a good idea because, you know, if you look at Canada, <clears throat> you know, Canada approaches this in a very sensible way as they approach a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> and, <clears throat> you know, what they have there... Is basically, it's all PROs. You have, um, you know, they have the performance right for sound recordings, performance right for uh, for, uh, uh, songs, uh, uh, mechanical right for sound recordings, and mechanical right for songs. The government sets a tariff, which I assume, I don't know anybody knows more about Canadian law, I assume there's some back and forth between the stakeholders that periodically set these tariffs. And the tariffs applied all different kinds of stuff. I mean, it's not just uh it's not just uh, you know, interactive or non-interactive. Right. It's, but there
0: there is know. an interesting development in Canada where Well, let me let me just
1: finish yeah. so everybody understands. So, and so what they have then is they have all these tariffs that are passed by by the government that are the prices, you know, it's like your rate sheet. And then they have separate uh, you know, there's a few different PROs that collect, you know, there's so so it's it's kind of like here where you have ASCAP, BMI and CSAC. Uh, and there they have, you know, SoProc and uh, Connect and some other ones like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, SASM and I mean, not SASM, um, so SoCan. Uh, yeah. But with the point being... The point being is that if you want to start, if you want to run a business using music, uh, no matter what it is, whether it's a bar or a discotheque or, you know, or, uh, or interactive service or whatever it is, you can go to Canada and get all your licenses. Boom, boom, boom. You have about six deals to do. So
0: you want the government to set it and deprive Jacqueline's clients of the ability to say... No, which is what an exclusive right under copyright. But see,
1: yeah, yeah, I do. I think that's a good idea because you know when you talk about uh, when you talk about negotiations, um, they're they're really only fair when parties are relatively equal size. You know, so for instance, it's great. You know, yeah, I mean, I'm not worried about Google negotiating Google Play with Universal Music. I don't care. You know, that's not my issue. That both big boys, they can fight it out. But what happens is that when you have the, the under the current scheme. They're, it's very, very difficult for anybody new to get in unless they're incredibly well funded, and that's why you
0: see all these. You know, most of these uh, services
1: are tied into big brothers. You know, so you let have the
0: government let the government set the rates and save us from ourselves and the big bad copyright. I, I think.
3: That yeah, because you want, very, because that's very point, damaging to artists. Which I sound
1: like a
0: BMI lawyer. That's see what you enjoy
2: bipartisan uh, support.
0: You
1: know, but see, I mean, exactly. I mean, you look at the way the PROs work. You know, I mean, the PROs can't say no.
0: You, you get a yeah. license, no matter what. Okay, you let's, want to let's talk about that yeah, for a yeah. second. Let's let's. Um, so the PROs, performing rights organizations, ASCAP and BMI, are governed by a consent decree, which says a user of music, whether you are a terrestrial radio station, a television station that has programming that has music, which is every program, uh, an online service, a store, a stadium. You can request a license from ASCAP or BMI, and you can try to negotiate. And they have spent lots of time, and they have economists, and they and come up a, with rates. And
1: when you and when you when you request a license, your license is effective as of that date. Well, first of all, and that's a very important point. Because yes, negotiations it, can take a long time, but you know you can go to the PROs and you have your license today. And then it's just yes, yeah, so although
0: that's been changed rate. somewhat by by some of the rulings. But you can get a license, and if you can't negotiate a rate, the government in the form of a federal judge in the Southern District of New York will set the rate for you after a litigation. PROs say these decrees, in the case of ASCAP, is from the 1940s. BMI's decree, a little bit uh, uh, more recent than that, but both decades-long consent decrees governing the operations and depriving musical work copyright owners of the right to obtain fair market value and songwriters of the inability to obtain fair market value, that the rate court proceedings are long and expensive and the PROs have to bear all of these costs of participating. Services can go years without paying the royalties while they're trying to negotiate unless one party goes to the court to get what's called an interim rate. Uh, And in response to this, last year, and actually before that with EMI Music Publishing, you had music publishers trying to withdraw from the PROs. EMI originally tried to withdraw entirely, and then the PRO said, no, please don't do that. Uh, then they modified their regulations to allow what are called partial withdrawals. So the idea was you could pull out the digital performance right for, quote, new media services. So you could be a member of ASCAP or BMI to license um, general licensing, so bars, restaurants, stadiums, terrestrial radio broadcast television, but we were going to withdraw the rights for online uses. And that was tried with both ASCAP and BMI. They both changed their rules to permit this. Two federal judges said, no, can't do that. You have to be either all in or all out. In the case of ASCAP, the ASCAP rate court judge said, partial withdrawals are ineffective, so you're in, your whole catalog is in. BMI rate court judge said, you, ca- you have to be all in or all out, but because you tried to withdraw, you're all out. And so at the end of last year, there was essentially significant turmoil, great deal of uncertainty, and what's been publicly reported is that Pandora ended up having to negotiate direct deals with the publishers that had partially withdrawn, and those rates were at substantially higher rates than the rates that they had been paying to the PROs. Now, the PROs say that's marketplace evidence of what would happen in a free market between a willing buyer and a willing seller, and therefore those rates should apply. Uh, Pandora said no, this was collusive behavior, that there was, uh, this was not a free market negotiation. Judge Cote, who is the ASCAP rate court judge, found that, in fact, there was likely potential evidence of collusion by publishers. The Department of Justice is now investigating. Pandora is still litigating against BMI, and their rate court proceeding starts in the beginning of February, I believe. Uh, partial withdrawals. Should they be allowed? Should a music publisher be able to say, you know what? I should not be constrained by the federal government or one judge. And why in the United States of America should I be governed by a 40-, 50-, 60-year-old consent decree? And why should I not be allowed to determine or have the market determine what my catalog is worth? Anyone supporting partial withdrawals? And if so, why? And if you're opposed to them, why?
3: I would support it i mean i sup again, I support the idea that you should be able to negotiate for the value of the the copyrights that you own or the creative content that you have and mostly so going back to the artists because I know we're talking about the publishing companies and the and their major record labels to a large degree, but if artists have to find new ways to make revenue which they are going to need to do part part of what they have and it's true like the the leverage is, isn't necessarily equal, but if I have a major label recording artist and I have assets that are really valuable to the public, I should be able to negotiate both with the record label or the publisher for a piece of whatever that transaction is it going to take place. I shouldn't, as the artist, just be subject to the royalty rate.
0: But why, why, an artist signed a contract, and the contract assigned the rights to the ownership of the copyrighted work to a third party who... They did, the
3: and, the, and the lawyers should have thought about the future of the music business 20 years ago and inserted provisions into those agreements that had the forethought to know where we are today, but they didn't. So we, going forward though, we don't want to go backwards. We want to go forwards. We want to say, well... Um, I think it we went backwards in the
0: election, but that's just personal. <laughs>
3: right, that's far enough backwards.
2: But th- that so. <laughs> requires comprehensive reform. I mean, all the way through to to the to the recording. Not, not necessarily.
3: Itself. If you look at artists going forward, I mean, think about artists going forward. Artists never and maybe isn't signed right now, and it brings up other issues like the, the seventy-two issue. If we're going to get there. We're going to get there in a second. But if 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 artists had their masters, if they had their publishing. And it's not really a viable option to say a, a songwriter sh- doesn't have to sign up with ASCAP or BMI, and it's just not realistic. But to the extent that artists can maintain more control over their, their rights and, and have the foresight now to negotiate what the bigger companies are receiving from these transactions, that's where I come down on it. And, and but they, uh, art-
0: artists are giving up even more rights with 360 deals. Not only are they giving up – not mine. <laughs> okay, but you, you mention some of your clients so that people know the type of artist you're representing.
3: Um, well, the, our firm, the two, the two that you'll probably be familiar with are the Grateful Dead and Metallica, who both have catalogs that are under the control of the. And artists. there's
0: a reunion tour. I, I think of both of them together, right?
3: <laughs> in the next room in a few hours, actually.
2: <laughs> you know, I think that if you look at if you look at the, the current question in a vacuum, right? With, without changing anything else, should, should the publishers be able to, to opt out um, with respect to, to digital? I think the answer is no, uh, because it, it just gives them the ability to be punitive with the non-interactive services. Or interactive. Uh, or, or interactive, sure. But the interactive services, at least in theory, can afford to engage in a, a, a free market negotiation a little bit better um, than than the pandoras and the the Siriuses of the world um, if everything's on the table and as we talked about earlier, we have some sort of omnibus reform and we go to a you know sort of a unitary license that's based on a percentage of revenue, then I think sure you know that that comes with the ability to pick and choose how you want your 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 music represented um, but in the current in the current construct um uh, I think no
1: Whitney I think that the the PROs and the um, consent decrees are extremely important. They both are. And one doesn't really work without the other. Um, you know, everyone looks back and the, you know the, the, the publishers love to go, oh, you know, 50-year-old law, 50-year-old law, 60-year-old law, whatever it is, antiquated. It's not antiquated. It's dealing with the collusion between different publishers to, you know, blackball certain people, to artificially inflate prices. I mean, you know, colluding to set prices is per se... Uh, uh, antitrust violation as per se anti competitive behavior, the reason that the consent decrees are there is to smooth that out because the the uh, collective society to to license and collect and administer these things is a very valuable concept but it 's not a very very valuable concept when you just let it run you know when it, when, when um, there 's no restrictions whatsoever because then you have the ability to pick the winners and the losers, and that 's not really what copyright 's trying to do well, but
2: wait, just to play devil 's advocate though i mean. Isn't it contrary to the idea of sort of addressing antitrust concerns if you let individual publishers pull out of the consent decrees, pull out of the – Oh, yeah, I agree. Out? No, I don't I, – I, I think, mean, how, I, I think you're
1: I, I agree with the you're all in and you're not all in. You know, I mean, I think if somebody wants to pull out, I mean, essentially they'd be starting a new PRO. So, for instance, if, you know, Sony ATV EMI decides to just – pull out 100% well then they're going to have to change their name to see you know they're going to have to develop something that looks just like a PRO to do all the things that PROs do so
0: does anyone welcome that world where the largest publishers withdraw from the PROs would you like to have to go to ASCAP BMI CSEC Sony ATV Universal Cobalt Wixen um, BMG Chrysalis you think that's a good world? I mean, I do that. You know, I've done that
1: on behalf of other. You know, on, on on interactive stuff. You know, I mean, that's what you'd have to do with interactive. Is that you go and you negotiate with every single record label and every single publisher. So it can be done. So the
0: free market can account for that.
1: Um, it can be done, but what I—that's like I said before. So it's—it can be done if you have a lot of resources. Okay. Because Let's, not only, well, not you know only, what? it can also gonna...
3: be done in an easier way. Because if you have, if you have the leverage when you're doing that, you don't actually have to negotiate with all of them. You can negotiate with one and get enough money. Um, again, on the artist side, get enough money that you don't need to bother with all the other ones.
0: Well, it's hard in the music publishing space because of split ownership. You just. I mean, transparency no, is mean, a whole other issue. That's You're not going to know. That's something
1: very worth talking about, is that yeah, we're split not, ownership. We're, okay. <laughs> we're, we're
0: going to go there next, but we're, we're going to go. But
1: just to throw it out there so that people understand, the way that you know copyrights are owned on the publishing side, it's a lot of times there might be 5, six, seven, 10, 15 owners of a song. So when you have someone really big, like a Warner Chapel, which is I think the second largest now, and then Sony ATV EMI, um, which is the largest – that catalog probably touches about 90% of the songs out there. Because there are, yeah, there's, there's songs that are 100% owned by one company or another, but there's a lot of songs that are, have, you know, own right. pieces all over the place. So effectively, if you have any one of those publishers pull out, you know,
0: any one of the big publishers pull out, you just goose your whole catalog. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a separate topic. Pre-'72 sound recordings. Sound recordings fixed before February 15th, 1972, not subject to federal copyright protection, governed by what they say is a patchwork of state laws. The Turtles, members of the Turtles, the band, brought a lawsuit against Sirius XM saying that the performance of pre-1972, what, so those pre-February 15th, 1972 works are called pre-72 works or pre-72 recordings. They were being played on Sirius and Sirius was not paying royalties for them. The Turtles sued and won, and now there is a district court, and then it was followed by a second district court saying that, yes, under California law, there is a state law right to a public performance for a sound recording. It's not covered by federal law. It's not subject to a statutory license. You can't theoretically pay sound exchange and and be protected, although I suspect many people do pay sound exchange and don't worry about it. It's if you're not paying for the use of a pre-72 work that you can be sued. Uh, so the first thing is, was this a good, good decision in the sense was, does it make sense legally that the court found that under California law, there is a public performance right for pre-72 sound recording And therefore, someone who uses it without a license is an infringer. So... Every radio station in the state of California, every bar, restaurant, stadium, school, uh, massive infringers in the state. Good decision?
3: Wait, did, uh, just to clarify, did they find that, that the statutory rate applied, or did they find that? No, there's
0: no, there's right. no statutory license, so there's no, no rate. The there's just a, the,
1: right.
3: just, there's a a right. just a
1: right. There's a right. performance right in sound, in, uh, sound recordings in California.
3: That there is like a that. copyright violation.
0: Yes, yeah. under yeah. state law.
1: I mean, you know, I think, it's, I think it's a terrible decision. I mean, and I don't even understand the logic of it because how could, why would there be a, a, a right that would have, been a very valuable right if it exists that nobody noticed for 42 years? <laughs> nobody noticed. You know, I mean, it's not, like, it's not like greed and avarice just strolled into the business today. It's always been there, you know? I mean, if, the, if, every, if anybody thought that right was there, it would have been, you know, it would have been, uh, there would have been this all would have happened 1972, 1973.
2: I mean, I think the decision was just about a state law right. I don't actually think that there's any reason to say that the state law right doesn't exist because pre February 15, 1972, works aren't protected under federal law. I think the, the state law right does exist. I think it was the right decision from that respect. How a musician, um, you know, a, a recording artist should be compensated for that state law right is, a, is an open question.
0: So you disagree with Whitney? You think it was a good decision on the law? I do.
2: I do. Under state law, absolutely.
0: Okay, let's vote on the panel. Jacqueline?
3: I think it was a good decision.
0: Okay, two to one. As the chairman I get to... You guys are litigators. If I was a litigator,
3: I would love that because I would go sue every record. But it's, it's an arbitrary date. I mean, it's 1972, and the next day it's 1973, you get paid. It then goes back to the problem of having the statutory rate set in the first place because if you didn't you could negotiate an entire rate for the catalog in its entirety and to the extent that you're an artist you know you have pre-72 post-72 recordings so you're going to get paid on the master side from Sirius if you can negotiate that license which is what what I try to do. For the entire catalog, not an arbitrary date of these master recordings existed prior to this date. So
0: here's where this issue comes into play on an even bigger scale. So pre-'72 recordings not subject to federal copyright protection. There is a federal court that has found that the safe harbors in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, do not apply to pre-'72 works. So if a pre-'72 recording is uploaded to YouTube or any online service provider that's relying upon – the safe harbor for content stored at the direction of a user, is now an infringer under state law, not federal law. So you don't have the willful damages of 150000 per work infringed, but you could have massive infringement, probably lots of breaches of covenants, and who knows how many different documents or M&A agreements or, or uh, financial or financing documents. Uh, it's pretty disastrous from that standpoint. So let's assume for the moment that California courts got it right or the federal courts got it right interpreting California law and that pre-'72 works are also not protected by a DMCA safe harbor. Is this tenable? Can this continue? I mean, what happens if every radio station in the United States or in California got sued tomorrow for playing pre-'72 recordings? Um, that's, that's what I think.
1: I mean, I, I agree with Jacqueline in the sense that I, I think it's, there should be a right. I think that pre seventy two recordings should have the same rights as post seventy two recordings, and it should all work just the same because there's no really good reason to have it separately. I don't think it was a good idea for a California court to just decide that that right has always been there and and look, we just found, you know we just noticed it. I think that's a terrible way to do it because, like you said, you know it's extremely disruptive to suddenly change a fundamental rule of how the business works um, you know way into the game before you know when no, when no one expected it to be that way. It's, this is, it's really something that, you know, should be dealt with the legislature, preferably, you know, federal Congress, not state Congress. But, um, um, you know, it's got to be thought out and it's got to be, you know, eased into a little bit. You can't just wake up one morning and suddenly there's a right that's been there all along and no one's known.
2: Well, it's not tenable to your question. It's not. I mean, as lawyers,
1: we all see
2: it happen again and again where legal decisions are <clears throat> bent by the practical realities of the the situations that the decisions will will bring about, I think if you look at this just from a pure legal perspective, the decision is the right one. Um, does it create chaos? Does it create discord and and disconnects? Absolutely.
0: So, isn't that good for lawyers? Sure. Thinking selfishly, <laughs> it's great for us. It's
3: not great for artists. I- even
0: Who cares? <laughs> joking, joking.
3: But there's a bigger problem with the safe harbor. I mean, the safe harbor, whether it's pre-72 or post-72, isn't really effective. It's not. It's not really working still. So if you took away the safe harbor, period, we'd probably be a lot better off.
0: Ooh. Okay. On that note. <laughs> as on that note. <laughs> Well, also you that know,
3: a, That's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying, again, that opens the discussion up to a, ne- a fair negotiation. So no Google,
0: no Twitter, no, no Facebook, what's r- no Google Pinterest. Has ne- no.
3: Uh, Google has amazing negotiators. You would think Google can't negotiate a rate for themselves? I if think they, they don't
0: have like a safe harbor and you could be – remember, copyright is strict liability. That content is on your – Google is an infringer when infringing content is uploaded to YouTube. They're not, not an Correct. infringer. What they have is immunity from monetary damages. You take away the immunity for monetary damages, and the damages, as we know from r- record industry lawsuits, begins with a B for How, However
3: you follow yeah, the safe harbor well and what you're, you, have a, you have just a, you know, a year's worth of notices that have no effect.
0: Okay. Uh, we are down to five minutes. So questions. We have a microphone somewhere right up here in the front. This gentleman has been waiting. Please quickly state your name. No statements. Questions only.
1: Uh, John Pettit, and my question would be, why is music different? Why is it handled differently than photography or written works or videos or all these other things? Why do you need a special deal?
0: Mean, and, and you mean collective licensing or statutory licensing think, or statutory PRS?
1: licensing, and, and to the, the people that want just a free market, look at photography, and do you really want that?
3: Well, well you mean with technology today, what's, what's happened with photography? Or do you mean historically? As a photographer, I don't get paid for most of my stuff. I guess. Now. Okay. Yeah, I'd I, a license.
2: I think the, the quick answer is that historically music and the evolution of music and the way it was created is um, a very manufactured experience. You had all these different players. You had the publishers and the record labels and the recording artists, and there was a lot of taking advantage uh, and exploitism in that, and it, it – it's a it's a long discussion, but music copyright law is very different than, than others
0: because of the various interest groups. Long discussion, very different. Okay, next question. <laughs> Debbie, you always ask questions. I always do. No, okay.
2: So, um, Debbie Newman, I'm an attorney and consultant. No, we don't care who you are, president. just
0: your name. Okay. What's the question?
2: Going back to the CRB Web 4 proceedings – and uh, there's a lot of discussion about the um, standard by which rates are set uh, in in the various categories of uh, streaming services. And in the current proceedings, the willing buyer, willing seller stand, as I understand it, is what's used by the judges. Yep. So there have been some private deals in the marketplace over the last couple of years, the... Uh, uh, I Heart the I Heart Media Clear Channel I Heart Question What's the question What is the impact Of some of these Independent deals Like the iHeart Media Warner Music deal And the recent Pandora Merlin deal On the judges Approach to The willing buyer Willing seller
0: uh, Rate setting Stay tuned To December 15th 2015 When their decision Has to be down yeah. Both sides Have used Direct deals So the record labels Have used deals Negotiated in the marketplace With interactive services The broadcasters and iHeartMedia have used the deals that uh, iHeartMedia or Clear Channel had negotiated with individual record labels, and Pandora has introduced the Merlin deal. So it's to be seen, but it's fully joined. You've got a gentleman over there. Yeah, you should actually try to get on the Follist, which is a listserv where if you send an email, I can forward it to, my email is ggreenstein, so first initial, last name at wsgr.com and I will ask to have you added to a list run by a gentleman named Jim Griffin and it's called what again? PHO, like the Vietnamese soup.
3: You can also try the trichordist.com.
0: Oh, As don't listen artist. to that. You can also just you can just also Google music law, what
2: the fuck, and you'll you'll find tons okay, of. Okay, next <laughs> next question right here. Wow, I want to start a blog
1: called that. Thank yeah. you.
3: Okay. You guys were talking <laughs> earlier about how it can take twenty. You, you're negotiating for these future things when when the contracts are being done. How do you think you can really understand what's going to be happening in the technology space to be able to do that? I mean, it doesn't seem realistic. It seems to me there's lots of small companies coming up that may be trying to use music completely differently than what people are doing today not just as a streaming service not just as interactive or non-interactive hire so really good why, lawyers that's why artists would be better off negotiating terms instead of giving up copyrights small companies could never deal with everybody small companies could never ideas. deal with everybody maybe I don't
0: know okay next <laughs> next question uh, Cincinnati Reds fan
3: I don't think you'd ever have to deal with everybody um
0: Go, going back, question. Going back to the end of uh, royalty exception for radio. Um, Clear Channel, yes, they could probably deal with that. It's kind of a question specific for Eric.
2: What about uh, independent radio? Do you think they could handle that, or do you think that would be the final nail in the coffin? Could independent them? radio handle what?
0: The, uh, the end of royalty exceptions for, for radio. So small so, broadcast stations, what would happen if they had to pay a sound recording royalty is the question. Cor- correct.
2: So how many small locally owned organic radio stations are there anymore you know there's there's a lot of momentum and marketing in congress um about exactly this let's protect local radio um they don't have much money but the truth is most small market radio stations are also owned by clear channel these days big markets have some local radio yeah but i think that they can um they can stand to pay a performance right, especially if it's part of comprehensive reform and platform parity and everything else that we discussed. None of these suggestions, in my view, work in a vacuum. You can't change one thing without changing everything, and that's why we've got this congressional morass, but I think we'll see omnibus reform.
0: I want to thank the panelists and all the attendees for coming. Actually, can can the panelists quickly give out their email address so that if people do want to contact you, they have it?
3: Um, sure. Jacqueline Sabek, J Sabek, S A B as in boy, E C, at K H P as in Paul, B as in boy, law.com.
1: Um, Whitney Brussard at Gmail. <laughs> Easy. Eric, E R I
2: C, at Fathom Law, F A T H O M Law.com.
0: And G Greenstein at W S G R.com. Thank you all for coming again. Hope you enjoyed it.